At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Take a dose of every day. How am I supposed to stay in a world built on empty ways? And the lessons are all the rage. Thank you for downloading Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 2, Episode 46. Dr. Aaron Adams of the Bonefish Tarpon Trust. This is more of a ecological conservation podcast than a fly fishing one. Though you're going to want to stick around for the fly fishing part at the end. And I myself took notes on what Dr. Adams was saying. In this podcast, we cover first the current situation in Lake Okeechobee. We go into the BTT initiatives and current projects. And then we discuss Dr. Adams and fly fishing. If you have not read the Dr. Adams profile on the Orvis website, please do so. It's uh, pretty easy to find. I think you just Google Dr. Aaron Adams, two A's and Aaron. And that will bring you to his whole background and b- of everything. I'm going to read the mission statement of BTT now. And then I will start my interview with Dr. Adams. To conserve and enhance global bonefish, tarpon, and permit fisheries and their environments through stewardship research, education, and advocacy, as well as serving 
as a repository for information and knowledge related to the life cycle, behavior, and well-being of bonefish, tarpon, and permit. Nurturing and enhancing bonefish, tarpon, and permit populations. Supporting research on bonefish, tarpon, and permit behavior and life cycles and on bonefish, tarpon, and permit fisheries. Providing educational material to the public. That's you. Working with regulatory regulatory authorities and the public to ensure that the laws protecting these species are enforced. Interacting with government agencies to assist in the management and regulations related to bonefish and tarpon. BTT is a group of concerned anglers, lodges, fishing guides, and other stakeholders working with scientists to answer questions about these popular and elusive game fish. BTT was formed in 1998 by a group of anglers, guides, and scientists in the Florida Keys who wanted to learn more about bonefish and tarpon in order to enhance their dwindling populations. Since then, it has grown to include concerned anglers from over 20 countries, researchers from throughout the world, and guides committed to working with BTT in order to educate anglers and gather data while on the water. Our continued success can only be guaranteed by your generous support and that of your fellow anglers. Please help in their mission by joining and urging your friends, guides, captains, and fishing clubs to join. And if you go to bonefishtarpentrust.org on the top right-hand corner, you have the option to join BTT. That's it for my intro. Let's get down to Florida and talk with Dr. Adams. And we also want to thank him for donating his time today as he is quite the busy man. And thank you to Dan Dow for helping to organize the logistics behind the podcast. All right, so um, we'll try this again. So national attention, Lake Okeechobee's not getting it. I've only seen it on social media through fly fishers. Can you describe the El Nino year and what's going on with Lake Okeechobee right now? Okay, a lot of people are probably not familiar with um, Lake Okeechobee. So if they look at a map about two-thirds of the way down the state, uh, right in the middle um, between east and west coast is a – huge lake called Lake Okeechobee. Um, It is used uh, for water management, primarily for agriculture, Um, some other smaller uses. And um, what's happened is that the dike that surrounds Lake Okeechobee has been deemed um, problematic, uh, especially after the catastrophe of, of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. The Army Corps, which is in charge of the lake, took a look at it and figured the dike wasn't in great shape. So um, Lake Okeechobee holds a lot of water that drains from up around Orlando um, all the way down to Lake Okeechobee. Um, when we get a lot of rain like we have this winter um, because of El Nino, um, that lake fills up to capacity. Um, and so the Army Corps of Engineers um, opens locks on the lake that release water out the to the west coast of Florida and the Caloosahatchee River and the east coast, the St. Lucie River. You know, historically, all that water went south through the Everglades. Um, and there weren't these kinds of, of problems with potential flooding and that type of thing. But because of all the um, manipulation of the Everglades, um, you know, all the 
development that's occurred on the east and west coast has encroached on the Everglades, plus the crisscross of canals that have been put in for water management. Um, it's really a broken system now. Uh, part of the problem with sending the water south into the Everglades um, is that it doesn't meet um, clean water standards. It's got I mean, the stuff looks just black, like anoxic, and it's all full of the farmers, the, not the pharmaceutical, the, uh, the stuff from like the sugarcane fields. Yeah, it's all um, the, the nutrients. Right. I mean, it's a lot of nutrients, um, and that's why they can't just kind of blast it south. Um, there's a, a plan called the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan. Um, which has been very well thought out. And um, so they have ways to fix it, to send the water back south. There just hasn't been the, the political uh, fortitude to get that done. And because of that um, lack of long-term political vision, um, the system is broken. So that when we get episodes like um, unusual wet winters like we're having now, the only recourse that Army Corps of Engineers has is to send that water out through those two rivers. Um, so it's a broken system that nobody seems in a hurry to fix, unfortunately. So yeah, in that water, I mean, it's really dark in part because uh, it's full of tannins, you know, from the from the uh, wetlands and the mangroves and those types of things, all the fresh water. So that's part of the color, um, but there's really high nutrient levels in it. There's all a lot of the the runoff from agriculture, the pesticides, the herbicides. I talked to a colleague down in Fort Pierce yesterday. They did some water sampling and they found some pretty nasty bacteria. So in parts of the St. Lucie River, they're telling people not to even touch the water. Um, some fishermen, you know, who say they've gotten poked by fish spines have gotten some rashes and that type of thing. Um, so that water that's coming out of Lake Okeechobee is bad in so many ways. But the thing is that even if you didn't have all those chemicals in the water, the nutrients, the herbicides, the pesticide residues, if you change the amount, the timing, and the location of fresh water flowing into an estuary, even if that water is perfectly clean, you're going to greatly impact the ecology of the estuary. So, for example, that much fresh water coming out of the St. Louis and Caloosahatchee rivers is certainly killing all of the oysters, all of the clams, a lot of the fish, um, a lot of the seagrass, um, all of which are are best in estuary brackish water or even salt water. So this much fresh much fresh water is killing a lot of stuff that the recreational fisheries and commercial fisheries depend on. And I imagine it doesn't smell too pleasant out there. <laughs> so the, are there some organisms that can escape if they're fat. I imagine birds can get up and leave, maybe dolphins. But if you're a slow swimmer, I mean, you're not getting out of there. Right. So the stuff that can't move, like the oysters or clams or small fish, that type of thing. Um, yeah, those are all dying now uh, with all this fresh water coming out. And you know, they've spent millions of dollars in both the Caloosahatchee and St. Lucie rivers and estuaries uh, to replant oysters and all that type of stuff. Um, and then we get uh, an event like this, and it pretty much negates all of that. Um, you know, but in addition to that, that's going on. It's really obvious. Um, you know, you see the pictures. Uh, much of the rest of the Indian River Lagoon, from St. Lucie north to Titusville, um, close to New Smyrna, 
is in the uh, grips of a uh, estuary-wide plankton bloom, brown and green, um, a brown tide and a and a green algae plankton bloom. So right now you can't see maybe an inch in the water uh, oh. for much of the east coast of Florida. So all that photosynthesis is just cut off. Yeah, and so that's going to cause another seagrass die off, I would assume, in an Indian River lagoon, which has already lost a lot of its seagrass. So basically, what's happening now is. You know, a lot of this is being blamed on El Nino because of the unusual um, amount of rain in what's usually our dry season. But Florida, its habitat, its fisheries, has been through these types of um, El Nino events many times before and haven't had a problem. The problem now is that our, our water is being mismanaged and it's really impacting our fisheries. Um, uh, so it's not good, not good at all. Um, the good thing about this event is for the first time, it seems to have really energized um, recreational anglers as well as guides in Florida um, to get this fixed and to make sure the politicians know that it's something that um, that matters now and hopefully they'll it'll matter in, matter in November. Oh. Uh, yeah. Cause they- yeah, I'm sure Rubio's uh, not going to be able to. I mean, I, I'm surprised it hasn't been brought up yet. That's sort of his constituents. See, all that right. area in Florida. If he's the senator, that's half of that's his. Um, yeah. Um, senator Nelson has been very vocal about it. I've not seen any comments from Senator Rubio. Um, it hasn't been a, a, a political priority in the past. Hopefully it becomes so now. Because as with any system... Um, the decline in the quality of the habitats and the fisheries isn't kind of a gradual. It occurs in almost like little falls off of a cliff. And so the concern is that there's going to come a point at which some of these systems aren't able to recover. So BTT and other groups are, are pushing hard to make sure we don't get to get to that point of no return. I wonder how, with spring break coming up, that's going to affect the tourism. Um, it already is affecting tourism in the areas, especially around where those river flows are coming out. Um, there's been a number of uh, kayak tour companies, for example, that have shut down. Um, a number of bait shops um, have laid people off. Um, you know, People aren't going to the beaches or that type of thing. So it's already having an impact. And yeah, spring break isn't even here yet. Wow. So it's frustrating. Um, but the, the key thing here is that recreational fishermen um, have been on the sidelines for the most part, for at least in Florida, but in my experiences, in, in a lot of places in the U.S., when these types of things happen. And that's frustrating because recreational fishermen are the primary users of these coastal habitats. So if we want to make sure that we have the opportunities to fish in the future or for our kids or next generations to fish, recreational fishermen have to really start getting involved in this. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you weren't looking for it, but there's a call to action to people to pick up the phone or send emails to the politicians to basically tell them to um, clean up the ship or move on. Yeah. Well, all the listeners take note of that, and hopefully by the time we're uh, this is up on iTunes, people will have a link on my website and stuff. We can all 
go and follow. Uh, let's get into, after that sad note, uh, some more promising stuff. Let's talk BTT. So you are sort of a, a local to the D.C. area, I would say. No, I mean, quote-unquote local. You went to college at St. Mary's? Yeah, I grew up uh, in Baltimore, northeast of Baltimore. Um, Don't have. Where's your accent? Yeah, I lost it in all the travel. Wow. <laughs> yeah, when I first uh, moved from Maryland out to California, people thought I was from Australia. <laughs> but I've lost the accent for the most part. Interesting. Yeah, I was up there yesterday in Baltimore. Not just the accents, but the jaywalking. Those people, it was like I was inconveniencing them <laughs> by having the right of way. <laughs> like four people per intersection would just walk across the green light. <laughs> Strange. Yeah. Right. And so back then, I mean, I looked at St. Mary's in the mid 90s and it was a pretty small, unheard of school. And you're not, I'm not going to date you, but. Um, it was a while ago, yes. Yeah. Um, and then, it's of course, Thomas Perkins, who's listening, he went there. It's a, uh, it's a right super uh, – it's a very good school. Um, and my former professors who are still there tell me I probably couldn't get in now because it's gotten even better. Wow. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a, it is a state school, but it's kind of semi-autonomous. So it's kind of closer to a, a, like a standard liberal, liberal arts type of school. Um, were there flamingos walking campus when you were there? No, they were walking everywhere. We had to watch out for the poops, the sidewalks. I think it's why they got rid of them. Uh, when I went down there in, I guess, 94, there were flamingos just roaming everywhere and they weren't wearing like bird diapers. So <laughs> it was, it was messy. You really had, when you've got a, st a group of like 20 students and parents all walking, they're covering the whole sidewalk with feet. It was, it was messy. <laughs> so, um, so what, what was it that burgeoned your love and passion for fishes and the biological sciences? Um, well, you know, my parents got me into fishing, um, probably when I was four or five years old. So that aspect started early. And then I just had a natural kind of curiosity about figuring out how and where to catch fish and that type of thing. And then, you know, through my my parents fishing with my uncle and then some good teachers in, in school, that just kind of um, changed into the scientific interest as well. So it's been a long time since I could separate fishing and, and, and the science of studying fish. They kind of inform one another. Um, and then, you know, at St. Mary's, it was especially interesting because it's right there on the, on the water. Mm -hmm. um, and just to kind of, you know, date myself again. Back then, we could actually walk off the point um, there at the school um, and wade, and it was cold <laughs> because it was winter. But we could wade and pick up a bushel of oysters in I don't know thirty minutes. Wow! Uh, and then you know, basically have a bit of an oyster feast. Now, I don't I don't think it's possible, no matter how much time you spend in the water, because of all the problems that they've had. Well, uh, Virginia Dominion Power, let alone last week, was 8,000 gallons of uh, mineral oil released into the Potomac. They've already released about 40 million gallons of coal ash water, and they're going to do it again this year. And Virginia actually voted to allow them to dump it in the river. Yeah, which I don't understand. I mean, for yeah. me, uh, career-wise, growing up and, and watching the Chesapeake Bay decline 
um, was pretty formative for my career. Um, so not just doing the scientific research, but uh, doing it with conservation applications. Um, seeing all those mistakes back then um, definitely um, was formative to me. Um, and it's pretty frustrating that the same type of behavior is, is being allowed in our current system. Um, were you part of the, the research when the striped bass populations were declining? I was not. Um, that was the, the big crash of the striped bass in the, in the 80s especially, um, and on into the 90s. No, I wasn't involved in striped bass. Um, I fished for them. Um, but as a matter of fact, even in the, say, in the late 70s and into the 80s, uh, it, you had a lot more success fishing for bluefish in, in the bay than you did striped bass because there was already a precipitous decline. Um, but my research has always focused, or previous to BTT time, focused a lot on uh, reef fish. Did a lot of work on artificial reefs off the mid-Atlantic coast, um, some similar stuff out in California and then the Caribbean. Um, when did you land in Florida? I've been in Florida since 2001. Um, I guess I can kind of backtrack. Growing up in Maryland, Spent some time in uh, North Carolina, um, then California, then back to Virginia for the first stint at graduate school, um, then the U.S. Virgin Islands for a bit, then back uh, up into Massachusetts at UMass to get my Ph.D., and then down to Florida. So I've traveled a lot. <laughs> yeah, I imagine some pretty good inexpensive rum, too, when you're in the Virgin Islands. Yeah, when we first move there i think a bottle of rum was something like 50 cents for a fifth my goodness um now it's it's considerably more but it you know it's still only a couple bucks down there because they have a distillery on sink yeah wow <laughs> that'd be fantastic uh, and you all and you worked at moat marine labs yeah so you knew you knew you knew genie um not well but yeah um, yeah. She was mostly in the emeritus status um, by the time I got there in 2001. Um, but yeah, when I moved to, to Mode after getting my PhD, um, I switched from studying uh, coral reef fish to um, estuarine fish in estuaries and with a more of a focus on recreational species. But the link was I've always studied the link between um, fish and their habitats. And that's a lot of what I did at, at Moat, uh, focusing on snook and, and tarpon mostly. Um, and that's a lot of the focus of Bonefish Tarpon Trust is figuring out the links between fish and their habitats and how changes to those habitats affect the fishery. Right. It seems like you are a perfect fit for what you do with your background. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been fortunate to end up in the right place at the right time. That's for sure. And you also work at FIT, so you're a you must be a very busy guy. Um, yeah, I mean, I have an appointment at FIT as a as a research associate professor. Um, I don't have any teaching duties. I'm just focused on research. Um, so no undergraduate classes, uh, but do work a lot with uh, graduate students on on numerous projects. So they come out and do they help with BTT research? And oh yeah, we've got. Uh, awesome. um, BTT funds, if, for example, right now, BTT and uh, the local land trust, Indian River Land Trust, are funding a, 
uh, graduate project at Florida Tech um, to look at how um, wetland impoundment are affecting juvenile bone or uh, tarpon and juvenile tarpon and snook. Um, so yeah, there's graduate students, not today, but over this past weekend, they were out mucking around in the, in the wetland, uh, tagging, catching and tagging tarpon. Oh, that sounds like fun. I miss being a biology major in college, just going out and doing stuff like that. Yeah. It's a nice office to have. Yeah. My girlfriend in college was pre-med, so she was in the lab all the time you, you, with a microscope. And I was out collecting and catching and releasing and going to Puerto Rico and the Outer Banks. It was fun. Yeah. And, that, you know, that's the fun part. And then, of course, the, the, the work part is um, taking all that information and analyzing it and, and then trying to get it applied to conservation and management. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the part that makes my hair gray. Right. So talking about the fish now that BTT works with, what is it that I'm trying to think of a way that, is there like a, a common, is it just the habitat they live in and that they're recreational species? Why are certain fish part of the research of BTT versus other fish? Well, our focus is on, the flats, um, so the flats fishery, let's say, and bonefish, tarpon, and, and permit are the are the big three. Um, although we also get involved in some of the conservation and advocacy, for example, with barracuda uh, in the in the Florida Keys, we work with the Lower Keys Fishing Guides Association to uh, get better regulations on barracuda in the Florida Keys because they're an important flat species as well. Um, we're involved in some um, work on juvenile snook because depending on where you are, uh, snook can also be part of that, that flat species list. Um, but a lot of it's, you know, focused on the habitats that they use. So it's those shallow tropical or subtropical, um, waters, mangroves and sand flats and seagrass and all that type of stuff. And is it, whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. What's the the major factor that's influencing their decline that you guys have noticed? Harvest, I mean, the only people I know that eat bonefish are Hawaiians. Um, I know that when I worked in the Keys, permit were called Mexican pompano by some people as a food. But no one eats tarpon. It, it's got to be just in the environment. It's not overfishing. Well, it's a mix. Um, and we're trying to figure out exactly what that mix is. Or the fish that they're feeding on. Um, the, 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 I guess the food chain, there's a missing link. It's breaking down. Well, it's a, there's, it depends on where you are. A lot of it has to do with location. So, for example, in the Florida Keys, um, we think it's primarily uh, water quality and habitat degradation. You know, we talked about Lake Okeechobee, so, and that at least partially drains into the Everglades. Um, 
so there's problems with water quality and quantity and timing and all that type of stuff in the keys that that's not helpful um and in the past it's caused some extensive seagrass die-offs in florida bay um so that's a likely likely one for sure um you go to other places say the bahamas um, where we work to identify where bonefish um feed and where juveniles are and where they spawn to try and protect habitats um, from developed coastal development. Um, other places that you go, uh, bonefish uh, are are eaten. Um, in some place in the Bahamas, it's not legal, but people still net them um, to eat and to sell. Selling and netting are legal there. Um, all three species uh, are, are eaten to some extent. Um, throughout the Caribbean. Um, so what we're trying to do is right now we're involved in two projects using genetics, one uh, for tarpon and for bonefish, to try and figure out the extent that the populations around the Caribbean and Florida Bahamas are connected. Um, so just kind of briefly, bonefish, tarpon and permit all spawn offshore away from the flats. Um, and when they spawn, they do what's called broadcast spawning, where there, there's no nest building or anything like that that you'd see with bass or salmon or trout. They go out and then um, in the open water, in big schools, um, they eject their eggs and sperm out into the open water. And that's where fertilization occurs. Um, and then when those eggs hatch in about a day, little tiny larvae that come out of the eggs float around for for permanent, it's about three weeks. For tarpon, it's about a month. And for bonefish, it's a couple of months. And during that time, floating around in the open ocean, um, they could get lucky and get in the current that takes them right back to where their parents were, but a lot of them get swept, swept elsewhere. So that's a way that you could actually have connections between places. Um, so, for example, it's possible that some of the, the bonefish that spawn in Cuba, some of those larvae could end up in the Florida Keys. So that's good for at least genetic diversity. Oh, it's definitely good for genetic diversity, yeah. but it also kind of makes it a challenge on what you need to manage. So let's just say, for example, that um, bonefish in the Keys, and this is totally hypothetical, but let's say 30% of them come from spawning in Cuba and 30% come from spawning in, in Belize. Well, if in either of those places people go out and net a lot of the bonefish on their spawning migration, um, then you could potentially you know, decrease the number of bonefish coming into the Keys by 30% at e from either of those locations. So um, that's definitely an issue. Um, that's a concern um, for Florida and for other locations. Um, similar type of thing for tarpon. Back in the 70s, uh, there was, I want to say, 6,000 metric tons of tarpon harvested in the, in the Caribbean. Um, Venezuela and Mexico were the biggest, um, and Brazil were the biggest harvesters of tarpon. Uh, and that declined uh, very quickly in the 70s, um, just because it got overfished pretty quickly. Uh, but even now, in some places, there's a, um, you'll find... For example, in South America, you'll find tarpon in the fish market on a regular basis. Um, I don't eat fish, but I can't imagine that's a. <laughs> I don't know. It's very oily, uh, not not especially tasty 
I don't think, but it, you know, it's a source of protein for people who need protein. Right. So it's not a matter of whether or not to, you know, try and get people to stop eating them. It's what, you know, what the, the fish population can handle. And another question that we're trying to answer with those genetics is it may well be that tarpon down in Brazil and Venezuela aren't part of the same population as tarpon, say, in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and if that's the case, then people in the Gulf of Mexico have more um, local issues to, to pursue as far as conservation goes. But if it is a, a wholly regional issue, then we've got to involve those other areas in, in some of the conservation work as well. Right. So a lot of a lot of questions. It's a lot more um, broad scale than I think a lot of people realize. Um, another way to think about it um, in your neck of the woods is striped bass. You know, a lot of the spawning, the majority of the spawning for striped bass occurs in Chesapeake Bay, some in Delaware Bay, and of course the Hudson. Um, so fish for spawn in Chesapeake Bay support the fishery from North Carolina all the way up to Maine. Um, and then, you know, do all their feeding up in those areas in the summers and then come back into the bay in the winter to spawn. So you guys even have a, a pretty broad scale geography for striped bass conservation. Right. Um, and the fact that they're all managed by the Department of Commerce doesn't really help. Right. That's kind of an archaic and an outdated system. Um, you know, fisheries management was originated um, way back when to address commercial fisheries. It's only relatively recently that recreational fisheries has become, um, in many locations, more economically important than the commercial fishery. Um, and so there's a, a management, I think, and for many species, is, is kind of behind the curve on uh, making that switch from commercial to recreational focus. They're working on it, um, but there's a lot of inertia there to kind of change the direction. But that's a lot of what BTT does is our job is to a couple of things. One, assess the status of knowledge for bonefish tarpon and permit and other species as we need to. And then uh, either do, conduct, or fund others to conduct research to kind of fill the knowledge gaps. But then the most important part of all is to use that information to do two things. One is to work with resource managers to try and improve regulations for the fish and their habitats based on science. Um, and the second is to take that information and use it to educate the anglers who are actually out there pursuing the fish so that they can become um, better advocates for the fishery. And if it's, is this mostly up to, to anglers to, to save these species? If I play this podcast to a non-angler, they probably have no idea I mean, what bonefish and tarpon are and, and probably could care less. Well, they should care. So there's a couple levels here. Um, one is that to answer your first question about anglers, um, if anglers don't get involved to protect our fisheries, um, nobody else is going to. Uh, just to give you an idea, with all the budget issues that have been going on for the states and and the feds. Now, Bonefish and Tarpon Trust is providing uh, grants to the state of Florida um, to help us study bonefish tarpon and permit. It's not the reverse. We're actually funding government That's agency. 
pretty amazing. Um, same thing happens in the Bahamas. Um, you know, we're funding various universities to do a lot of the research as well. So for bonefish tarpon and permit um, and other catch and release species, um, we're really short on on the science that's needed for effective management. Um, so yeah, if recre recreational anglers don't get involved, um, then there's not a whole lot of hope for not just bonefish tarpon permit, but a lot of other fisheries as well. Um, you know, look at that yourself in the mirror, and that's the person that's got to get involved in this stuff, whether it's joining BTT or, or other groups that are advocating for the fisheries. Um, that's essential. But then to the point of someone who doesn't fish, why should they care? Because healthy fisheries, let's talk about bonefish tarpon and permit are mostly catch and release. Um, even snook in Florida is 98% catch and release at this point. Um, so it's not harvest that would cause a population decline. It's, it's issues with habitat. And so the fisheries are pretty good reflections of habitat health and habitat quality, water quality. So as habitat quality and water quality decline, so do the fisheries. But it's not long before it's not just the fisheries that suffer. Um, it's the people who are in and around the water that suffer. Um, you know, for as I said, for example, with uh, water coming out of Lake Okeechobee and the St. Lucie River, um, they have health warnings for people not to touch the water. Oh. So let's say you own a house on the St. Lucie River. What are your chances of selling that right now? <laughs> yeah, not happening. Um, or something else that's been in the news a lot that is a, a, a tragedy is the is the water drinking water issues up in Flint, Michigan. Um, and for all the, the tragedy that is for those people, I think it's an indication of a bigger problem. Um, the Flint River is obviously not a good place as far as habitat quality goes. Um, and it's affecting the people that live there. Um, and so a lot of other places that might see fishery declines due to water quality declines, um, the next step is not just the fish, but the people that depend on it. On, on the fish in the water. Um, so yeah, even if you don't fish, it should matter to you. Right. And without fresh water, you can't have really a population in Florida because it's surrounded by salt. Right. By surrounded by salt that's rising. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's places in Miami beach in Tampa, um, keys that, uh, are regularly flooded now when we get, uh, full moon spring tides. Wow. Um, and part of that to be, you know, it's, it's amazing, but part of that saltwater intrusion into land areas um, is, is sea level rise. But part of it is also due to um, the lack of fresh water where it's supposed to be, right? So water has weight. So if there's a higher level of fresh water, say in the Everglades, uh, where it's supposed to be, that actually helps to um, push back saltwater from intruding. Um, farther inland, you know, underground, um, through the limestone. Um, so there's a lot of implications for the water mismanagement that's going on now, not just the fish, but, um, and another way to think about it too is, you know, the recreational fisheries are worth a lot of money. So just to give you an idea, the, the saltwater recreational fishery in the Florida Everglades region, um, is worth, has an economic impact of around a billion dollars a year. That's billion with a B. Yeah. 
the Florida Keys, just a flats fishery, has an annual economic impact of $465 million a year. Right? You go to the Bahamas and the bonefish fishery, um, the flats fishery is around $150 million a year. Um, and the list goes on. And those are sustainable economies, but they're only sustainable if we have good habitats. And so you think about all the ripple effects. You know, let's just imagine that all the fishermen who come down to Florida to fish, just think if they stopped coming. Um, it wouldn't just be the bait shops that would that would close. It would be affecting the real estate agents because the guy who owned the bait shop would sell his house and move or try and sell his house and move. Um, it would go on and on. Um, so it's economic importance as well as um, fisheries and conservation importance. Yeah. Um, but if people get involved, I think it's, uh, I'm an optimist. Um, so I don't think it should be a downer kind of podcast. It's just that people have to get involved and start pushing back. Um, cause, um, these habitats will fix themselves if we give them a chance. That's the amazing thing. When, when people leave mother nature just takes back everything. Um, but their places on um, that it can't happen. I mean, even Chernobyl, though, you know, Mother Nature is taking back what it, it can. Right. After a nuclear meltdown. Right. I think you probably still wouldn't want to eat the fish there, but yeah, nature's no. starting to clean things up. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think about what these fish have been through. So, for example, bonefish have been around, if you look at the fossil record, in their present form for about 35 million years. Right. So they've been through a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the difference between way back then and now is that the rate of change um, now is so much faster um, that tends to than than what has tended to occur um, if you look back through the fossil record. Um, but they're pretty adaptable, um, and so I think they'll be fine if we can just kind of give them the um, the leeway to to do what they need to do. Um, uh, I mean, bonefish, I'll kind of continue on with that. It's pretty amazing. You get these fish that, you know, let's say they're five pound fish. They're what, 21 inches long or so. Our tagging information, do a lot of tag recapture in the Bahamas and, and Belize right now, some in Cuba. And 80% of the fish that are recaptured are recaptured within a kilometer of where they were tagged, whether it's a day or a year or five years later. Interesting. Right. So they have what we call a high level of what we call site fidelity. Um, they've got a pretty small home range. But so that means that if you're a fisherman um, and you go out and you keep fishing the same spot over and over again, you're educating those same fish. Um, so it's good to move around. Yeah. Um, but another interesting thing is when bonefish spawn, they migra migrate away from the flats. And they actually spawn offshore in water that's thousands of feet deep um, at night um, in groups of tens of thousands. Um, and then they go back and they go back to exactly the same spot that they came from. What is the evolutionary adaptation to spawning offshore? Well, it's fewer predators, things to eat the, the larvae. It's fewer things. The thought is that it's fewer things to eat the larvae for one. Um, if they spawn inshore, um, definitely more predators for that, for the adults, as well as for the larvae. 
Um, when we've studied uh, bonefish going offshore to spawn, there's some predators, um, but not nearly as many as you'd expect. Um, and it almost seems like the predators are overwhelmed by, you know, 10,000 bonefish swimming around in a tornado. Um, so predation doesn't seem to be that high. But then there's also less out there to eat the, the eggs and the larvae. Um, and then the larvae, in order to survive, they eat other plankton that's out there. Um, and it's also a way to kind of spread, you know, kind of hedge their vets, so to speak, so that some of those larvae come back to where the parents were, but some of them also get swept elsewhere. Um, so let's say, for example, that a certain island just gets absolutely devastated by a hurricane. If some, and it, and it damages the bonefish population, if some of the offspring from those bonefish are, have ended up on other islands, that weren't hit by the hurricane, then that kind of gives the regional population a bit of a cushion. Mm -hmm. um, but it's pretty amazing to to see these fish that we think of on the flats out in, you know, 8,000 feet of water going down to a couple hundred feet to spawn. Um, and then after all that, finding their way back to exactly where they were before. Um, and we've recorded some fish. Uh, it seems to be pretty common, um, 50 miles round trip, 140 miles round trip from home range wow. to spawning location. And, and this is all new research since BTT was founded. Yeah, this is in the past five years or so that we've really started to nail bonefish. But I mean, think about it from a human perspective. You know, a lot of people, they'll go into a shopping center, into a mall, and they come out and they can't find their car. <laughs> yeah. Right. And here are these fish swimming. And at most, they're seeing 10, 20 feet in front of them. And they can still navigate back all the way to where they came from. It's pretty, it's pretty insane. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we had to put a uh, flower on our antenna of our car <laughs> just to be able to see it. When my wife bought her SUV, it was silver. And it, it, there's so many silver SUVs out there. Right. It's like, great. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty wild stuff as, as far as trying to figure out what makes these fish tick so we can help them make sure that all the things that they need um, to succeed are available to them. I mean, another way to think about it is that these habitats are kind of like a, uh, an assembly line at a factory. Uh, as long as the assembly line's in good shape, you'll keep turning out good products. But as we mess with the habitats, we're kind of altering that assembly line. And, you know, in some, some locations and some, some fisheries, that's, that's definitely affecting the product. Um, so it's trying to work to keep that system functional. That's a, it's a pretty big challenge. All right. Uh, and I want to get into now some of the projects you guys are, are currently working on. Um, spawning bonefish in captivity. Um, that doesn't sound like an easy no. thing to do when you're trying to replicate what you just described that they do in the wild. Um, yeah, no one's ever done it. <laughs> The, the bonefish, the larvae that hatch out of the eggs of bonefish doesn't look at all like a bonefish. It's kind of clear and it looks like a, a small eel. Is it lanceolate? Uh, well, it's called leptocephalus. Leptocephalus. Yeah, leptocephalus larvae. Um, it's the same kind of larvae that tarpon have, that ladyfish have, and that uh, saltwater eels have, you know, like the American eel. Um, and no one's been, ever been able to... Um, get them to, they can get them to spawn in captivity, sound like the eels, but no one's ever been, ever been able to get the, uh, 
they left the cephalus larvae to feed and to survive. Um, so yes, a big challenge. And it's actually, it's a, it's one that we don't take lightly because we don't think that perpetual stocking of fish is a good conservation measure. And, you know, the trout and salmon world has pretty much uh, learned that, um, especially the salmon world, with all the genetic problems, et cetera. Um, but we think that, um, that the bonefish population in the Florida Keys has declined so much that they may need, the population may need a bit of a boost to get them at, up to a self-sustaining level. So we're spending uh, a lot of money in the Florida Keys, South Florida right now to try and figure out what has caused the decline of the bonefish population. Once we figure that out, we'll push for measures to correct those causes, those problems. And so we want to have the ability to stock bonefish for a couple or a few years as a, as a tool in our restoration toolbox. Um, if we're lucky, um, we'll never have to use it, but it's something that we want to have available. And so we've given ourselves, um, starting March 1st, actually, um, we've given ourselves five years to figure out how to spawn and rear bonefish in captivity in case we need that stocking as a, as a conservation tool. Um, and it would, again, it would be similar to what they did with uh, striped bass during the recovery. It's just a, a short, short-term boost, not a long-term perpetual stocking program. Um, and hope that kind of helps them get back to a self-sustaining level. Do you think one day you would have bonefish in the classroom for elementary students in Florida? Like TU has for raising trout and then releasing them uh, Yeah, like 10 or 12? Um, no, because we don't want to make it a perpetual stocking program. Right. Um, we want the system to be able to, and the fish population to be able to, uh, you know, function on their own um, and sustain themselves. Um, they might be good as uh, education tools or um, rear some bonefish to do some experiments on. Uh, for example, we're also involved in some work trying to figure out if some of the contaminants that are coming out of the uh, runoff from, from the land into Florida Bay might be affecting um, survival or growth or even reproduction of bonefish. And we prefer not to have to collect bonefish from the wild. Um, so if we can rear, any, rear these fish in captivity, then we can act, we can use those fish to do the experiments on the contamination effects. Um, Speaking of Florida Bay, how much did the Deepwater Horizon affect populations? The big oil spill. Uh, to our knowledge, it didn't. Um, it appears that most, if not all, of the oil um, uh, stayed up in the northern Gulf of Mexico, um, but that's still partly unknown, you know, because so much of that oil didn't come to the surface. Um, and they're still finding a lot of issues in the deeper water in the northern Gulf of Mexico, but there's no evident um, direct effects in the Florida Keys. Um, more of a, a problem is the likely effect on tarpon. Um, one of the projects that we're supporting, have been supporting for years, is trying to figure out where tarpon go to spawn. Uh, we know that they go offshore, and we've we think we've identified a few spawning locations in the Gulf of Mexico, for example. One is about 120 miles or so off of Boca Grande 
uh, pass in southwest Florida. But there's also, it looks like, one um, off the coast of Louisiana. And believe it or not, it's almost the exact spot where the deep water horizon occurred. So all that oil and even more so the dispersants that they spread were coming out during the summer uh, spawning season for tarpon. Um, so it's likely that there was a, a an impact on tarpon that wanted to spawn. And if they spawned, certainly an impact on their eggs and larvae while the oil was flowing. But there's also concern that there may be some longer term effects as some of that some of those oil and chemicals, et cetera, are still circulating around in that system. Fantastic. Yeah. So it's great. And again, that's a good example of us working to try and fill the knowledge gaps so we can apply it to conservation. Um, even if we don't know what the potential threats are, you know, we weren't, we couldn't obviously predict uh, the horizon oil spill, but we have, the data to show that, um, yeah, it probably impacted tarpon. Um, so, I mean, the list, list goes on. Um, you know, the other thing we're doing in the Florida Keys, which is a challenge that we have for a lot of recreational fisheries in the salt, is that um, we don't have much historical data, right? So you can't go back, say, 20 years and get an estimate of how many bonefish there were, or tarpon, or even permit, um, much less what catch rates were, fish size, or all that stuff that you would know, say, about striped bass or um, redfish, stuff that once had a commercial value. Um, and so one of the things we're doing in Florida Bay is uh, working with colleagues to look back at 30 years worth of data on water quality and habitat and uh, the things that bonefish eat, bonefish prey, um, as well as um, reconstructing the fishery um, by interviewing uh, fishermen and gu guides who have been fishing in the Florida Bay, Everglades, Keys region for the past 30, 40 years. Um, trying to rebuild history so we can see what the fishery actually looked like so we know what our target is to rebuild it. Um, so all those fishing memories do, do actually, or can come back to, to help the future. Right. And continuing with the tarpon, you guys are going to start, um, mapping. So it's, uh, it's, it's out of Charleston. So do you guys have like a satellite office up North or is that just sort of the Northern limit where you're trying to track where the juvenile tarpon are, are moving in and out of salt marshes? Um, there's a number of things going on with, um, with tarpon. Um, so let me start with the juveniles. Um, when those larvae come into coastal waters and transform into miniature tarpon, they look for the stinkiest backwaters that they can find. Um, it could be salt water. It could be fresh water. It could be extra salty water, um, hypersaline water, uh, but they're looking for that backwater mucky type of stuff. Uh, in fact, um, as uh, tarpon um, transform in those early juvenile days, um, their gills aren't functioning especially well. Um, and so they get a, a lot, if not all of their oxygen um, from gulping at the surface. 
but even after their gills are fully formed, um, they can still get most or all of their oxygen from gulping at the surface um, for quite some time. And that's because tarpon have a, a rather modified air bladder. It's not like the air bladders of other fish. It's kind of a spongy material. Um, so it's, it's not too different from a human lung. So they can actually extract oxygen uh, from the air um, just like just like we can. With when I lived in the wind half a winter in the Keys in uh, Key Largo, I could hear them at night. Yeah, behind the condo, <laughs> it was pretty cool. It is that'll keep me from sleeping. That's for sure. Yeah, um, and I was just watching. I think it's Monster Fish with Zeb Hogan. I think the National Geographic Channel. And he was fishing for tarpon somewhere in Central America, and he was complaining because every time they come up to the surface, they grab a gulp of air and then go back down to fight. And he said he couldn't tire them out because there was no, um, you know, they, they weren't burning through their oxygen and getting tired. They would come up, gulp, go back down, and be <laughs> back in the fight. Um, well, there's a whole art to fighting tarpon. You can you can beat them. Um, and folks might want to look up. I imagine it's online on YouTube or something. Uh, Stu Apt uh, made a video at one point on techniques for fighting uh, tarpon. This was some time back, um, but I assume it's been uh, digitized and uploaded. Um, so yeah, but they've got a lot of tricks up their sleeve. So anglers need tricks up. We need a tricks up our sleeve. Yeah. Well. Um, so with going back to the juvenile tarpon, you know we know we need those. They need those backwater habitats, and of course. Those are the places where a lot of people like to fill in the wetlands and, and build stuff. So one of the things that we're doing is we are trying to map um, juvenile tarpon habitats first throughout Florida, but then throughout the region as well, so that we have a map of where they occur. Um, and that'll allow us to prioritize areas to protect and then other areas that we think we could restore to healthy habitats. So we're... Um, relying on uh, fishermen um, to share with us the places where they see tarpon less than 12 inches long. And I'm a fisherman myself, so, um, and I don't like to share location information. Um, so all that information that comes into us is confidential. We'll use it to build a map um, that we won't show to other people, especially other fishermen. <laughs> Um, but we use that map, those map data to work with state and federal agencies to get areas protected and then others to get restored. So the tarpon fishery, you know, for the adults, especially up in South Carolina and also somewhat North Carolina, has really um, exploded in the past five, six, seven years. You know, say 10 years ago, there was probably only a couple people fishing for tarpon, targeting them up there. Um but now uh, there's a whole recreational fishery. Um, and as part of that, all that new fishing, um, more and more anglers are reporting uh, seeing small tarpon, um, say 16 inches or less, uh, somewhat in the estuaries, but mostly in the wetland impoundments up in South Carolina, some in Georgia. And so right now we're funding a study with the University of South Carolina, north of Charleston, um, to see, first of all, if tarpon can survive winter up there. Um, if the water temperature gets below 50 degrees for too long, um, that's going to kill the tarpon. 
Um, so we know that they're in those impoundments in the fall. The question is whether they survive to the spring. And a lot of those impoundments in South Carolina um, in the low country are managed for uh, duck hunting. And so they'll actually empty those impoundments in uh, during parts of the year, about now, this time of year. But we've been able to uh, work with uh, the state of South Carolina, um, their DNR, to keep some of those impoundments full of water, uh, of deep water, six feet or more, to see if those the tarpon in those impoundments with water can actually survive the winter. Now, because if they if they can, you know that that's a whole new area um, accessible to juvenile tarpon that could certainly help the overall population into the future. With the tarpon's unique gas bladder system, when they die, do they float? Not necessarily. Um, so you wouldn't be able to see floaters out there and know that cold water got them or something else. Right. If you saw a whole bunch floating, sometimes they'll float, um, but not all the time. Um, and that's true for you know, a lot of fish. Uh, but the other thing is, you know, they could it they could be pretty quickly picked off by birds or um, there's gators up in those wetlands as well, um, or snapping turtles or any of that type of stuff. Um, so you might not might not see them floating. Right. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens this spring. Uh, see how many of those fish survive, because it was a pretty warm winter until January came, and then it's been pretty cold uh, ever since. Um, but you know, people don't know that. Um, Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The adults will migrate um, into the Carolinas for sure pretty much every year, but that there's also some fish that make it to Chesapeake Bay. Um, so I'm hoping if there is a, a benefit of global warming, that some of them are going to come up into D.C. <laughs> well, there's, there's some places in the Maryland, Virginia area, and that's as specific as I'll get, um, where people... Um, fish for tarpon pretty much every summer, wow. late summer. I, I mean, I know we'll get redfish up here if we have a drought. Right. Um, I need to find these people that know where the spots <laughs> are. <laughs> if if they're listening, uh, they're glad I didn't say anything other than what I just said. And that's yeah. probably too much. <laughs> but they're out there. Um, so it really is, you know, a, a, a fishing, whole fishing community effort to protect our fisheries because the stuff that helps the striped bass helps the tarpon that come up there as well. It helps the redfish and it goes on and on. Um, and you know, again, working with groups like BTT, um, the more information that fishermen share with us, the more we can apply that to conservation. Um, and then I'll, so I'll repeat again, if information is shared with us, we'll keep it confidential. Um, believe me. Um, it's used for conservation, not to help people, find and catch more fish that's right. that's their job excellent all right uh you want to move on to permit sure talk talk what to do with permit we're doing acoustic tagging now yeah 
perimeter is hard to study as they are to catch. <laughs> I've never seen one. <laughs> I saw one at, at Worldwide. Is it Worldwide Sportsman? Worldwide Angler? Oh yeah, yeah, in the tank. That's that's it. Um, no, oh no, we did catch one trawling off Moorhead City. It was about the size of uh, a little bit bigger than a silver dollar. Yeah, right along the beach. Uh, yeah, we were we were right pretty close into the shore. Yeah, juvenile, just trawling through the. I don't know where we were. The juvenile permit. We know this much. They're when their larvae come in, the little juveniles, they're found along uh, sandy beaches. So, for example, up in Carolina, they'll be mixed in with pompano along the beach in the summer. A fish that they often get confused with. Yeah, so they're, they're similar in appearance when they're small. Um, but if you see them side by side once or twice, then you can easily tell the difference when you have just one of them in your hand. Um, so we've done the research to figure out what juvenile habitats are, which are sandy beaches. Our major concern there is when people, when uh, areas do beach renourishment projects, it probably wipes out that as juvenile habitat for a few years, um, just as it does for pompano. Um, so we're working. Um, well, a few years ago, we worked with the guides and the anglers in the state of Florida to make um, the Florida Keys a special permit zone, um, so that there's no harvest of permit during the spawning season. Uh, which is three months in the summer. Um, and there's a pretty restrictive uh, bag limit and size limit to reduce the recreational harvest of permit. Um, and there's still no commercial harvest. Um, and so we're doing a lot of tagging and tracking of permit um, in large part to see if that special permit zone in the Florida Keys is big enough. Um, because there's a you know, there's also a recreational fishery north of the Keys uh, in the summer. Um, permit go out to artificial reefs um, in the summer, about seven days after the full moon, um, to spawn. And there's a lot of uh, fishing effort on those locations. Um, so, our, any reason why they do it after the full moon? Um, not sure why, but it seems to be about seven days after the full moon is the peak spawn uh, for tarpon. A bonefish, it's right around the full moon. It can be either side of the full moon. Uh, tarpon seems to be the same thing, either side of the full moon or sometimes a new moon for tarpon and bonefish, uh, but right around the moon. Not sure why uh, permit are typically seven days after. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, it appears to be a lot of harvest of of tarpon from those spawning aggregations of spawning schools. So we're doing a lot of tagging and tracking to see, you know, to the extent that fish on the flats are also the, those fish out on those offshore wrecks and those types of things. Um, and so we started a new project in the lower keys where we're using acoustic tags to track permit. Um, and their acoustic tags are similar to radio tags that, they use for say trout and salmon those types of things in fresh water um but since radio signals are essentially electrical signals and electricity in salt water is attenuated very quickly it disappears very quickly we have to use acoustic tags which send out a, a sub subsonic ping uh, the way to think about it is if you see a movie with a submarine in it that kind of ping mm -hmm. but it, we can't hear it we have to have special equipment to, to hear it and so we have underwater um, listening stations or receivers uh, stationed around the lower keys so that as tag permits swim by them, 
um, we can pick them up and each tag has a unique identification code so we can track permit as they move around. Um, and we're getting that program ramped up right now and that'll expand. Um, and that also fits in well with a new program we're starting uh, now is to use acoustic tags to track tarpon as well. Um, the same, you know, same technology. The nice thing about acoustics is that um, a lot of different scientists are using acoustic tracking, using these new tags to track different fish. So, for example, in South Carolina, um, they're using acoustic tags to track uh, redfish in the estuaries. And so they and triple tail as well. Um, and I think cobia now also. Um, and so they they'll have these receivers scattered throughout the estuary. Um, and the same thing's happening in Maryland and Louisiana, Mississippi, et cetera. So any of our permit or tarpon that leave the Keys or even leave Florida uh, and, and swim to other estuaries, say Mobile Bay or Charleston Harbor, have a pretty good chance of getting detected by their receivers. Um, so it's a good way to look at local movements, but also longer distance movements. Um, so it's pretty exciting to get started with that. Um, and then, of course, the only way to go out and get them is to go fishing for them. Right. Um, that's the fun part. Um, Would you ever have like a, a corporate organization sponsor a tagged fish? Um, we do. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. The way that Bonefish Tarpon Trust gets its money um, uh, is not from, for example, from grants from federal or state agencies. Uh, nearly all of our money comes from individual donors, you know, fishermen who become members or some fishermen who um, give us, you know, considerably larger gifts to help our research. We also get a lot of money from uh, corporate sponsors. Uh, so, for example, um, the genetics project I described earlier for bonefish and tarpon, um, that's being sponsored by uh, Yeti Coolers. Um they really I'm using their their cup right now. Oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've got uh, got their cooler on my skiff and I've got another one I use on my paddleboard. Um so they've came through in a big way to help the the that genetics uh project. You know, for the uh, tarpon tracking, a project permit um from its outset was funded by Costa Sunglasses. Um I mean Costa really stepped up to the plate, not just with us, but in other conservation work. Um, they've been working, we've been working with Costa now for probably six or seven or eight years. Um, so they're a huge sponsor of, of the, the permit tracking. Um, another big sponsor of the permit project is the March Merkin uh, Permit Tournament, um, which will be happening here in a few weeks out of Key West. Um, they raise a lot of money for the project every year. Um, and we're even doing things uh, with the with the acoustic tracking where um, donors can um, sponsor fish. So say, for example, um, some people are sponsoring a, a permit uh, for the permit tracking. Um, so donating $500. And then when we download the data from those receivers every six months, we'll share some of that information with, with those sponsors. Um, the other thing is they get to name the fish. Um, so I'm, we're getting some interesting names being suggested. <laughs> they have to be clean. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, it's a great way for people to get involved with all this work that's, uh, you know, that's contributing to long-term conservation of the fish. Um, and we work a lot with fishermen and guides to get these fish tagged. So unfortunately for me, it's not the thing where I get to take off the month of March and just go tag tarpon and, and permit. Um, we'll set up, uh, days, for example, um, with guides, say out of Key West, we'll say we're going to be down in Key West Monday through Thursday, um, and give them our cell phone numbers, uh, and say we're going to be in a certain area. So if they catch a, a permit, um, they give us a call. We run over in our boat, take the permit from them, and um, and do the do the surgery to implant the tag. Um, so a lot of times uh, the scientists aren't doing the fishing, unfortunately. The guides and the anglers are doing that. Um, we're doing the the science side of stuff. That sounds just as fun, shooting around on a flats boat. Yeah. Hopefully nice weather. Better than sitting in the office. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so for my permit, office is disgusting. What we do is uh, we surgically implant the tags. They're about the size of, say, a double A battery. And we make a small incision with the scalpel. We do the same for bonefish uh, in the abdomen. So we flip them over. Um, small incision, um, just a couple centimeters long. Slide the tag into their abdominal cavity and then uh, stitch them up. Um, and then hold them for about 20 minutes or so to make sure they're in good shape and then let them go. Um, and you know, that tag is pinging away from the moment we put it in the fish, um, for small tarpon, um, with the new tracking program that we're starting for them, we're doing surgical implantations on smaller fish, but not on the larger fish. Um, cause there's really just no way to properly restrain, you know, say an 80, hundred pound tarpon to do surgery on it. Um, and I'm not really interested in having a scalp on my hands with a hundred pound tarpon flopping around. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's definitely, it, it's interesting work and the anglers and guides that, that work with us to, to do this stuff, um, are always excited about our participating, um, and knowing that what they're doing is, is contributing to the future of the fishery. So it's pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah. Any other BTT stuff you want to mention before I start asking you about some fishing? Um, ah, geez, I could go on forever about all the stuff we're doing. Um, I would guess that, you know, just again, tell people that if they're not a member, please become a member. Um, cause it's about the future of the fishery. Um, and whether you fish for them or not, I mean, even if bonefish tarpon permit are on your bucket list, um, then you especially should, get involved to make sure that you can still fulfill that bucket list down the road um, and visit our website uh, which is btt.org um, to learn more about us we're also on facebook just search for bonefish tarpon trust uh, instagram um, pretty much every social media platform um, so keep an eye out for us you can also go to our website and sign up for our monthly electronic newsletter um, and uh, we put out an annual magazine that summarizes a lot of this stuff, too, that, that uh, members get for free. And then I guess the final thing is if you have a favorite uh, fishing shop that you'd like us to contact so that they can carry our magazine and brochures, that kind of stuff, uh, send that information to us from our, via our website, and uh, we'll get the stuff out to them. Fantastic. Yeah. 
right. So how often do you get to fish recreationally? Not enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, no, definitely not enough, but things are pretty busy, but as much as I can, um, you know, one of my favorite things to do, I'm on the kind of central East coast of Florida, Melbourne beach. Um, one of my favorite things to do in the summer is to search for, uh, tarpon pushing bait up against the beach. Um, and that's a blast. You can actually stand on dry sand when the conditions are right and hook 80, 100, 120 pound tarpon. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty wild. Um, you have a preferred big stick for your tarpon? Um, 12 weight for sure. Um, I've actually been using, uh, recently as my home rod, the, uh, the Orvis Helios two one piece. Oh yeah. Which is super nice, very light. So it's great for running up and down the beach. Um, but also really good, uh, fish fighting rod as well. Um, I even got a, a nice one tarping off my paddleboard with that rod uh, last summer, um, which was a lot of fun. Um, got the fish close enough that I could actually see how big he was. And then I, um, I broke him off so that he could, um, swim off on his own rather than have me try and fight him on a paddleboard for an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah. Imagine you get a pretty good sleigh ride. Um, yeah, yeah, you do. Um, um, but that kind of brings up another point too, is, um, you know, catch and release fishing is really only if effective conservation tool if the fish survive. So the couple things to do on that tarpon story just reminded me is to try and keep the fight time short. Um, so for tarpon, um, my personal, um, limit is about 20, 25 minutes. If I don't have them where we can grab the leader in that time, um, I'll either let them jump the, jump the hook off or, or break them off. Um, if they're too exhausted, it's too easy for sharks or whatnot to catch up to them. The other thing is to, um, if at all possible, keep the fish in the water. Um, exposure to air um, impacts the gills of fish. Um, so, for example, if a bonefish is exposed to air for more than 15 seconds, its chances of dying increases about six times. Goodness. Um, I've always wanted to know about taking fish out in cold water. Those gills have got to freeze immediately. Certainly can be. I'm not familiar with, with trout. Um, um, <laughs> on purpose, I work on warm water fish. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of research that's been done on that. So for our general rule for safe, if you want a picture of a fish, is if the fish, if you can get an underwater one, that's best. But if, if you want one that shows the angler, etc. Our general rule is if the fish is not still dripping in the picture that's been out of the water too long. So have the camera ready and the fish in the water. Um, you work with your photographer to kind of get it all set up, lift the fish up, click, 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 put it back in and, and send it on its way. Um, so that, that anyway, that story about the, the tarpon on the paddleboard, the reason I, I broke him off is, um, cause I didn't want to have that long fight. So he was gone within 10 minutes. They able to get him close enough to get a good idea how big he was. And then, then off he went. Um, but, uh, when I do, when I can, um, I love to fish for bonefish too. Um, in the keys, of course. Um, but also with some friends over in the Bahamas. Um, 
it's it's hard to beat you know wading shin deep flats um, looking for tail and bone fish um, that's a lot of fun I can't say I can agree how awesome it is because I haven't really done it yet. <laughs> I need to I need to get down there. You do. You need to yeah. put that out on the top of your bucket list because um, that's yeah. a lot, that's a lot of fun and it's a good excuse to get out of the mid Atlantic at this time of year. I keep telling my wife we need to do like a rum tour of some Caribbean islands and throw some fishing in while we're down there. Well, that's a good point. One thing people don't realize is that. Just because a place is not a fishing destination, like the Keys or the Bahamas, doesn't mean there's not fishing there. Um, and I learned that firsthand when I, I lived in the Virgin Islands for a bit. Um, so if you go to a Caribbean island, you know, definitely throw a, a, a travel rod in your bag. Because um, you can just walk along the beach. Um, you can sight fish for bonefish, for example, or... Some of those places, even the small islands will have a, if you ask at the hotel, might have a person who does a little guiding on the side. Um, I've caught many bonefish just walking Caribbean beaches or even just blind casting off the beach um, with a small clouser. You can catch snappers and barracudas and all kinds of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I can write you a doctor's note for your wife if you want. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then. What about you? Does your background give you a good advantage in, in knowing where fish will be and what they're feeding on and what to throw? Um, I guess, I guess so. I mean, it's hard to tell. You know, everybody gets, gets skunked, right? When you go out on the water. So it's all about, about the fish, but the way my whole strategy for fishing, um, is habitat focus. So people, a lot of times will ask me, what's my favorite, my favorite fly for bonefish? Um, and it all depends on the habitat. Um, you can look at the habitat and get an idea of what the most likely prey in those habitats are going to be, and then choose a fly according to those habitats. Um, you know, in, in many locations, um, just throwing a, a gotcha on is, is plenty, especially if they're school and bonefish. But in other locations, and especially for larger bonefish, I think it's more important to, it becomes more important to be able to throw a fly at them that they're expecting to see and that they think is uh, something to eat. So mm -hmm. for example, if the habitat is right for bonefish, one of my favorite patterns, um, a couple patterns, imitate mantis shrimp. Because um, bonefish love to eat mantis shrimp and, and permit do as well. And the thing about mantis shrimp is they have, uh, they look like a praying mantis, that's the name. But they've got these um, front appendages that are either punchers or slicers. Yeah, those things are just, they break fish tanks. Yeah, the punchers can break fish tanks. So if people have aquariums they, and they won't mantis shrimp, they've got to have extra thick glass. Oh. I, I think I read once it's the same force as a thirty-eight caliber bullet. Mm, I wouldn't be surprised. So they use that to knock out prey. So if a fish or crab swims by and they can punch it, they knock it out and they can eat it. Awesome. The others have a slicer and it's, it's rapid, super fast. And so they'll, they'll basically slash at prey. And the reason I like that pattern is that if a bonefisher permit thinks it's a mantis shrimp, there's not going to be a nibble. If they're going to eat it, they're going to crunch it because they don't want to get sliced or punched. Oh. And permit and, and bonefish both have bony plates. Um, they don't have teeth. 
So bonefish have a bony tongue and the top of their mouth is bony. So they crush things when they slurp them in. Uh, permit, a bit farther back in the throat, they have those crusher plates, kind of like redfish. Um, and so when they do that, they kind of slurp them in pretty quickly. So there's it's an either or type of situation. So I think, you know, in the saltwater, in the freshwater world, the fly anglers, you know, they get all the books about entomology and they know the different stages of um, development of all the different insects and all that kind of stuff. Um, some saltwater fly fishermen are like that, but not enough. And so my approach is closer to the, the trout guys. Um, and I just apply it to saltwater, try and figure out the habitats and the, the conditions that, that they're in. Um, and that's the book you have at Orvis. Yeah, the book. Well, I have a couple books. The one at Orvis um, talks about the relationship between habitats uh, and the fish um, and the types of prey that, um, you know, the fish are going to encounter. Um, and then a, a second book actually has um, macro photography of, of, those, of those different prey that you'll find. Um, so, yeah, basically, my general rule is I'll share all that kind of information with anglers um, as long as they're interested in listening, but I'll never, ever tell them location. Yes. <laughs> you got to figure out your own location. And so the one, you do the one at Orbis is called Fly Fishing for Coastal Game Fish, and the other one, which is from Stackpole Books, is Fly Fisherman's Guide to Saltwater Prey. Um, the, the color pictures are awesome in it. The other thing I'd say is that when people tie flies uh, for saltwater fish, um, the the order um, of how I construct a fly, the first thing is the profile. You know, just not even color yet, but just the profile, because that's the first thing that the fish is going to see. The second thing is the movement of the fly. Um you know, how does it move in the water? Does it undulate or do you want it to push water so it sends out vibration waves to call in the fish? And then the third thing, the final thing is color. Um, do you have preferred materials for movement, like bunny fur, craft fur? Um, yeah, for movement, um, Arctic fox is good and... Um, um, Finnish raccoon is good because they're durable and they have good uh, movement characteristics. Um, I still use some rabbit, um, but I find those others to be, um, they don't foul as much and, and they seem to be pretty durable. Not absorb as much water? Yeah, they're easier to cast for sure. It's not like casting a, a wet sock. Yeah. Um, and then you have a thing about weight that you and Rosenbauer go back and forth with. <laughs> Rosenbauer overweights all of his flies. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the other thing I'll do with with all the you know all my flies is I'll have um, a lot of flies that have no weight at all. I'll have some that'll have bead chains and different size bead chains to match the fly, and then I'll have a handful that'll have um, lead eyes. But since nearly all of my fishing is sight fishing which means you're relatively shallow water. Um, I usually don't use weighted flies. 
um, because you should be able to present the fly, even say a bead chain, in such a way that you can get it down to a fish on the bottom um, appropriately and get a good presentation. But even more importantly, um, you get a lot softer landing when you do cast. So you're a lot less likely to, to spook the fish. Um, unweighted flies or lightly weighted flies are a lot easier to cast um, and a lot easier to cast on longer leaders. Um, so even for tarpon flies, they're all unweighted, sometimes bead chain. But if I want to add weight, learned a trick from a guy down at Key West, John O'Hearn. Um, just take a few wraps of lead wire around the hook shank. Um, and that gives you enough weight to get the fly down if you need to get it down. Um, nice. So, yeah, but Rosenbauer, he's also, he also fishes nymphs a lot for trout. Um, yep, yep, yep. So he's all Still about deep. getting down to the bottom. Well, if you if you're the one that brings bead heads <laughs> to America, I guess you gotta <laughs> stick with them. If the, he, he needs to go out paddleboarding with you with a tenkara rod for bonefish. Yeah. <laughs> I, if he does that, I'm taking the video camera. Yeah. I, uh, I, do you ever get to do postmortems and, and look at the stomach contents of some of these fish? Yeah. Um, when we've done stuff, if we're doing a diet study. Um, we usually, we don't kill the fish anymore. We'll pump their stomachs. Um, and you gotta be careful doing that cause it's easy to cause if you pump too much water, too much pressure, you can cause some damage. But that's how we did a lot of our diet work on, uh, on snook, for example. Um, and some of the work on, on bonefish as well. Um, haven't done any on tarpon or, or permit yet. Um, but I'm sure that's coming. Um, but for bonefish, what we found is that um, fish that are less, this was in the Bahamas, but fish that are, were less than 16 inches ate mostly um, stuff that was in the bottom, like worms and, and clams and, and, and that type of stuff. You know, they did eat you know, shrimp and, and crabs, of course. And if you throw a shrimp or crab pattern at them, they'll definitely eat it. Um, but they're... Um, you know, standard grocery list was stuff that you'd find in soft bottoms, um, which brings up a, a, a little tip I'll share. You know, sometimes you'll see uh, bonefish tailing um, in really shallow water or like a really slow, lazy tailing, not chasing anything or digging or anything like that. Um, and a lot of times you can't get those fish to eat. Uh, a lot, I think many times those fish are eating um, kind of slurping um, worms out of that soft bottom. And so something like a San Juan worm, uh, believe it or not, um, is often pretty effective. Uh, pink is a good color for that or tan. Have you tried the squirmy wormies for bonefish? No, I haven't. <laughs> squirmy wormies. I have not. Yeah. <laughs> when I was at the Western North Carolina fly fishing show, every booth had squirmies. And then I, the land, uh, the, uh, the Somerset show, I didn't see a single squirmy worm. Hmm. Interesting. Just different take in different locations. Yeah, different locations, different fishery focus, um, that type of thing. Um, so, yeah, I guess the thing to do is uh, for people, most of the bone, say if you're going on your first bone fishing trip, most of the fish you're going to fish for are going to be pretty shallow water. So I would not overweight the fly. Okay. But have, you know, so for any pattern, like if I tie gotchas, I'll tie a lot that are unweighted. I'll tie a lot that are bead chain and then we'll have 
just a couple that might have a, um, a heavy, heavy barbell eyes. Just in case you fished a mudding fish or cruising deep fish or something like that. Fantastic. All right. I think you've given us a good amount of, of time today. Anything else you'd want to mention before we both get back to work? No, just that all this fishing talk makes you want to go fishing. <laughs> yeah. Well, not, not here. We're having our third major <sighs> Potomac River flood in three weeks. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that'll put it off. Um, no, I just appreciate uh, helping to give BTT the coverage. Absolutely, anytime. And we'll give give a shout out to Dan Dow. Yeah, our, who uh, who helped facilitate this? Our um, PR and communication manager. Yeah, Dan does a great job of helping to get the word out. We had some good laughs up at Somerset. It was like having a sleepover with like teenage boys. <laughs> it was it was pretty hilarious. <laughs> Not much else to do in Somerset in the middle of January. No. Oh, no, no. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Adams, thank you so much. And um, I'll send you the link when it's up. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. Listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.